How many of you have ever been excited by the words, coming soon? Seems as if there's always something coming soon, whether it's a new movie coming soon to theaters, the latest Apple product coming soon to stores. There are lots of things that are promised to be coming soon, some things that excite us, but at other times they can concern us. There are certain things promised to be coming soon that serve more as a warning than an invitation. Bad weather can be promised to be coming soon. Layoffs and financial woes can be promised to be coming soon. When I was young, got in trouble for acting up, my mom would warn me that my father was coming home soon. And that was not good news in that circumstance. The promise of, of something coming soon has been a promise issued to people throughout history. The Old Testament prophets, for example, often reminded the, the, the wicked of the fact that God's judgment was coming soon. The day of the Lord was coming soon. Death and destruction is coming soon. They also promised while judgment is coming soon, so is rescue and restoration, forgiveness and salvation for God's people. And that promise is made by God to us as well in his word. We, we learn from God's word that we are sinners set against him and that judgment is coming soon. We also learn, while that is the case, there is hope for us. There is rescue for us. There is salvation for us through faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone. This, this message of human sin and divine judgment, man's need to repent and seek God, this message of God's mercy and his grace shown us in forgiveness and restoration of those who repent and, and seek him is a message that we find all throughout the Bible and is the message of the prophet Zephaniah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. Yes, that is a book in the Bible. You can find it by looking in your table of contents. Don't be too proud to do that. Those of you all with electronic devices, you're in luck this morning. Starts with the Z. Or you can find the book of Habakkuk. We were there not too long ago. We preached through Habakkuk. It's between Habakkuk and Haggai. And some of you are like, thanks a lot for that. I'll look at the table of contents, right? You got some time. For the next four weeks, we are going to be studying the book of Zephaniah. In this book, Zephaniah is writing to God's people. And he is writing to warn them of the great day of the Lord. He is warning them that it is coming. It is coming quickly. It's coming soon. Therefore, repent. Turn from your sin and seek the Lord. Look to him for forgiveness. Turn to him for rescue, look to him and trust in him for salvation. That is Zephaniah's message. And again, that is God's message for us today. Something I, I want you to consider in the upcoming weeks as we study this book 
is whether or not this announcement of the Lord coming, the fact that the Lord is coming soon, I want you to consider whether that announcement comes to you as an invitation or a warning. As something to eagerly anticipate or something for you to dread. Are you ready for that day? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you been restored to a right relationship with the living God through Christ? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Are you a child of God's because you have made God's Son, the Lord Jesus, Lord of your life? Or are you an enemy of His who has rejected Him? As we study this book, God is going to instruct us through His prophet Zephaniah of man's wickedness, the surety and severity of God's judgment against sin, and how we can prepare for that great and terrible day by repenting and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to simply introduce the book. I know it's a small book, but there is a lot for you to know by way of, of context so that we can move forward together, okay? So I'm going to introduce the book. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the book and explain some major themes of the book this morning. Before we look at this book in particular, let's take a moment to just let me give you a little bit of background on this section of Scripture known as the Minor Prophets. After the period of the judges in the Old Testament, God's people decided they wanted to be like the rest of the nations surrounding them. They wanted an earthly king to rule over them. And so God appointed Saul first as king. And while he did a good job militarily, he did a poor job spiritually. And he was eventually replaced by David. God promised David that his kingdom would be established forever. And while you know and I know that is eventually fulfilled in Christ, it looked like that was going to be the case early on when David ruled and then his son Solomon took power. While there were some squabbles between David and his family, while Solomon had his issues, the Davidic kingdom remained strong and stable, but it was not to last. It was during Solomon's son's reign because he was an oppressive and unwise ruler that the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. Of the 12 tribes, 10 went north and became known as the northern kingdom. Two stayed in the south, became the southern kingdom. The 10 that went up north, they set up a new capital in Samaria. And it's during this time during this period of the divided kingdom that the minor prophets were written. The prophecy books in the Old Testament go from Isaiah to Malachi. The five larger books are placed first and they're classified as the major prophets and these include the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The latter 12 from Hosea to the end of the, the Old Testament to Malachi are classified as minor prophets. And the reason they're labeled minor is not because they're less important, because they're smaller, okay? That's the reason why, because of their size. The books are written to either the Jews in the northern kingdom or the Jews in the southern kingdom. 
and you've got a little hint. I'll give you a little hint to how you can tell who they're writing to. Whenever Israel or Samaria is mentioned, that's to the northern kingdom, okay? The reason why is because most of Israel went north, 10 of the 12 tribes, so it's often they're referred to as Israel. They formed a new capital in Samaria, so whenever that's mentioned, you know, he's talking about the northern kingdom. Whenever Judah or Jerusalem is mentioned, they're talking about the kingdoms in the south because they're in Jerusalem and Judah was one of the two tribes who stayed in the south. Benjamin was the other one. These books span a long period of time, a period of 300 years. For those of you who don't think that's a very long period of time, think about this. The the entire New Testament covers a period of time of less than 100 years. Also, think about what was going on in our nation 300 years ago. We are still 50 years from the birth of our nation. It's a long period of time, isn't it? We often think they're happening right there together. Most of us do. They're not. They cover a period of 300 years written from the 700s to the 400s. Two key dates to keep in mind when you're studying through the Minor Prophets, 722 B.C. and 597 B.C. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722. The southern kingdom fell to Babylon in 597. Jonah, Amos, and Hosea were prophets to the northern kingdom before it fell to Assyria. Micah was a prophet to Judah before enduring the fall of the northern kingdom. And Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Obadiah were prophets before the fall of the southern kingdom. Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi were prophets to Judah after the Jewish people returned from captivity. They're known as the post-exilic prophets. Now, Joel's debated because it's tough to figure out the dating of the book of Joel. Some believe there's evidence to show that he was a pre-exilic prophet. I believe he was a post-exilic. I won't, I'll spare you those details today, all right? Because we're not in Joel, all right? So that's a little background on the minor prophets. Now let's look at the book of Zephaniah. Hopefully you're there by now. Did I give you enough time to get there? Okay, good. The author is Zephaniah. We're given background on Zephaniah in Zephaniah 1.1. Look at it with me. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Here we learn quite a bit about Zephaniah right off the bat. He is born into an important family. Notice, he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Now, we don't know much about Cushi, Gedaliah, Amariah, but their being mentioned here shows us who Zephaniah is in relation to Hezekiah. It also shows us Zephaniah was not the descendant of Hezekiah's wicked son, Manasseh, who was an ungodly and evil king who led God's people into idolatry. Zephaniah was the descendant of one of Hezekiah's younger sons. For those of you all that are up on your Old Testament, you should know that 
Hezekiah's rule was the opposite of his wicked son Manasseh in that he did not lead God's people into idolatry. He led them out of it. We're told of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. This is a significant detail. Here's why. Because Zephaniah, in the spirit of Hezekiah, is going to address the spiritual state of things in his nation, the nation of Judah. He's going to address their idolatry. He is going to call for God's people to forsake their idols and turn away from their false worship and seek the Lord. Mark Dever, in his commentary on Zephaniah, explains that Zephaniah lists his genealogy here probably because he is addressing this nation so that his word would carry some weight. Dever says, if your great-great-grandfather was Thomas Jefferson, you would probably mention that fact if you were going to address the American nation. So that's what Zephaniah is doing here. He's showing that he is coming in the spirit of Hezekiah. Date of the book, 630 B.C., around there, the 630s. A couple of reasons for this. Number one, in Zephaniah 1.1, we're told that Zephaniah's prophetic ministry took place in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So this book was written during the reign of another great king, King Josiah, who ruled from 639 to 609 B.C. Now remember, the fall of Jerusalem is in 597. Josiah's reign was the last fruitful reign before Babylonian captivity. There is also good reason to believe this book was written before Assyria falls, and we know that, that Assyria falls in 612 to Babylon because the reason we, we believe it hadn't fallen yet is because when Zephaniah prophesies against the Assyrians, they, they still seem very, very powerful in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. So it's before 597, before Assyria falls in 612. Also, here's a little bit about Josiah's reign. This helps us date the book as well. His reign was a lot like Hezekiah's. We're told of Josiah in 2 Kings 23. You're going to read about these kings this week in your scripture reading. Verse 25 of 2 Kings 23. Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah had a fruitful, God-honoring reign as well, but it took time to get to this point. He took the throne at the age of eight, and it was not until about eight years after taking power that Josiah gets serious about following the Lord. In the 18th year of his reign, he was making strides to repair and restore the temple, and Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered a copy of God's law. 
written by Moses. After the book was read to Josiah, he was alarmed at how far God's people had strayed from the truth of God's word. So he began, like Hezekiah, to push for reform. And again, I tell you all of that, all of those historical details, because that is important in dating Zephaniah. Because Zephaniah is writing to a group of people who were idolatrous and they were duplicitous in their worship, meaning they were taking false beliefs and blending them with the worship of the one true God. And they were apathetic in their attitude toward God, believing God's not going to do anything to us, whether good nor bad. They said that. They believed that. We see that while Zephaniah is writing, there is... This is before this time of of Josiah's great discovery and and transformation. So Zephaniah's prophetic ministry is believed to be in the early days of Josiah's rule when he was very young. For that reason, many believe that the prophet Zephaniah was, was influential in the life of Josiah. Many believe Josiah's commitment to God is fruit from Zephaniah's ministry. We don't know that for sure, but... We can draw a lot of conclusions by looking at the time in which he reigned and Zephaniah ministered. If Josiah took the throne in 639 B.C., then this book, that's why it's given an early date here of around the the early 630s, mid-630s, something like that. Talked about the date, now let's talk about the audience of Zephaniah. We've established when he wrote it, who's he writing to? We learn the first of the book in chapter 1. He's writing to Jews in the southern kingdom before the reforms of Josiah. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 4. God says through Zephaniah, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember when we said, when we see Judah or Jerusalem, who's he talking about? In the south, right? Yeah, yeah. So we we have indication there. He's, He's writing to the Jews in the south. While God speaks a message of judgment through Zephaniah to the surrounding nations as well, his main audience is his own people because he addresses them in Zephaniah 1.1 through Zephaniah 2.3. Then he comes back around full circle and addresses God's people Judah again in Zephaniah chapter 3. So he's writing to the Jews in the southern kingdom, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? Why is he writing to them? Why does God call for Zephaniah to prophesy against his own people and the surrounding nations? Notice a couple of reasons why. The first reason is to inform them about their sinfulness and to warn them of God's coming judgment. In this book, Zephaniah is confronting the wickedness of his own people and the wickedness of the surrounding nations who were great enemies of God's people. We will learn next week in Zephaniah that that when he begins, he begins with Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they were guilty of idolatry, spiritual duplicity, and apathy. We're going to learn next week that they worship Baal, they worship Molech, and they were also taking these false pagan beliefs, and they were bringing them into the temple and they were blending them with worship of the one true and living God. Their attitude was also, no big deal. God's not going to do anything to us, neither good nor bad. 
They were apathetic and they believed God was apathetic in his attitude toward them. They were trying to hedge their religious bets, cover their bases, trying to play it safe by appeasing all these different gods, believing there to be no consequences to their actions. Their mentality was, we're still making time for God. We've just included all these other practices as well to cover our basis. No big deal. God tells them through Zephaniah, big deal. It's a huge deal. He tells them in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 1, I'm putting it in my own words. We'll read God's words in a moment. But he basically says, I am furious with you. I'm furious with you. I'm furious with your ways. And not only am I going to wipe out your false gods and do away with false worship, I'm going to set myself against you. I'm going to stretch my hand out against you and I'm going to take you out. Read the book. It's what he says. God makes it very clear here that he is the one and only God and does not share his glory with anyone else. He does not share the stage. He is God alone, and he alone is worthy of worship, and that has always been the way. In the very beginning, we're told, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. At the very beginning of the book, The universal lordship of God is established in the fact that the one true God of the Bible is creator of everyone and everything. Therefore, everyone and everything are under his rule. God's people are reminded of this before they enter into a land occupied by foreign nations who are worshiping all kinds of gods. God reminds his people in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And by the way, that phrase before me, that literally is translated in my presence. So theology 101, where is God's presence? Where is he? Everywhere. So if God says there are to be no other gods in my presence and his presence is everywhere, then God is saying, you should have no other gods anywhere. Anywhere. God says, there is not room on my stage for me and anyone or anything else. He says, I do not share my stage with my creation. And he shouldn't, should he? He's creator God. He is God alone. He alone is the only infinite, all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. Everything else in creation pales in comparison to him. The Jews in Zephaniah's day had missed this completely. They thought they could lump God in with the rest and felt he would be okay with it. God clearly lets them know he is not. Look at Zephaniah 1, 2 through 4. We'll look at this again next week and really unpackage it. I will utterly sweep away. Count the I wills in this, by the way, as we read it. I will utterly sweep away 
everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom. You know how many times I will is used in Zephaniah? Over 20 in three chapters. God's going to do this thing. God is not going to allow for them to be idolatrous and duplicitous and apathetic in their attitude toward him. Zephaniah is reminding them that the one true and living God has no co-regents. He has no joint heirs, no rivals. He leaves room for no other beside him and will judge all who try and place anyone or anything next to him. Who or what do you worship? Before you say God, examine those things in your life that rival your relationship with him. What occupies your thoughts, your time, your money, your efforts? What do, you, what do you sacrifice for? They may not be bad things. They may be good things that have become bad things because you have allowed for them to become ruling things. Know that God does not play second fiddle to anyone or anything. Your loyalties are not to be divided. And if they are, repent. Give your life to him. Guys, come to the study tonight. We're talking about all of God. How we're to created for all. And oftentimes that all is misdirected and misplaced. It's to be set on the creator of all who is. One of my seminary professors, Old Testament professor, Dr. Stephen Miller said this in his commentary on Zephaniah. Look at this quote. If love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind is the first and greatest commandment, it seems reasonable that to disobey it would be the greatest sin. Our Creator made us for Himself and demands that we give to Him our undivided love and devotion. End quote. That's true. In addition to pronouncing judgment on his own people, Zephaniah pronounces judgment on the surrounding nations as well for their pride and their terrible treatment of God's people. We're reminded in Zephaniah that God keeps his word. He promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he is going to curse those who curse them. He stays true to that. That was the sin of the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Cushites and the Assyrians. Those are the nations that are addressed in Zephaniah. Now, God's pronouncement of judgment here against those nations, you need to know that would have not gone over well for these foreign nations in Zephaniah's day. We're going to learn in a few weeks that to claim that your God was the true God and the authority over the nations was too extreme. Sounds familiar in our day, right? 
That was too radical. was not well received. It did not jive with those who had a polytheistic worldview who viewed there to be multiple gods and they were territorial. They had a God, this nation had a God, this nation had a God. So when Zephaniah was talking to the people of Judah about what God was saying to them, the other nations would have been fine. Yeah, that's their God. That's the God of Israel. But when he turns his focus toward them, that didn't go over well. They didn't believe they had to answer to the God of Israel, the one true God of the scripture. And it doesn't jive with many in our day, does it? Those with the pluralistic belief that believe there are many religious roads that lead to truth, many roads that lead to God, and, and all one has to do is just choose one of those and be sincere about it. Be sincere about what you choose to believe. As long as you're sincere, you're okay. Many are our day, they're, they're fine with other belief systems that are pluralistic, but very intolerant of what God teaches in His Word when it comes to His universal lordship. But listen, folks, regardless of whether the world likes it or not, it matters not, because that's what God's Word teaches. According to the Bible, it was God who made the world and everything in it. Therefore, He is over all and will one day judge all. It is His divine right. God has every right to judge all authorities, whether earthly or spiritual, all beings great or small, because He is creator of heaven and earth. Whether we acknowledge Him or not, it matters not. The truth is the truth, whether we believe it or not. That's it. There is coming a day when every human being, no matter where they live on the planet, great or small, important or insignificant, rich or poor, they will answer to God for the life that they have lived. And because sin is universal, no one will be able to stand before a righteous and holy God in this day on their own. We are in need of someone to save us, to rescue us from sin and death and restore us to God. Some of you may be thinking to yourself right now, I, I can see why this book's never been studied. <laughs> why I've never heard a sermon preached from Zephaniah. This is not a popular teaching in our world today. People don't like to study about the severity of God's wrath and the certainty of His judgment. They don't like to be faced with the reality that God is righteously angry with the wicked and will judge the wicked both in this life and in the life to come. Maybe if you're here and you're being honest, you, you might have to admit that, that you don't like this teaching. You would prefer that we skip it. There's nothing I can do about it. You got to take that up with God. I have no authority in it of myself. I stand under the authority of the word of God. While this teaching is often avoided and ignored, it is inescapable. God makes it crystal clear in His Word that judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. It will be swift, severe, sure, extensive, and inescapable. Those truths we'll find in this book. Yet, while that is true, there is another truth that in light of this truth is truly glorious. It's the reason we're here today. If the story just ended there, there'd be no reason for us to be here singing songs of praise, right? And being worshipful. That's not the end of the story. 
while God is coming in judgment, while it will be swift, severe, sure, and inescapable for those set against him in sin, God has provided a way of escape, a way of rescue, a way to be saved from his wrath and restored to a right relationship with himself. Which brings us to our next reason for Zephaniah writing this book. He not only writes it to warn of God's coming judgment, but he also writes this message to call for man to repent and seek the Lord for rescue. We'll look at this more next week, but flip over if you have to flip. I don't know if you do. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. Look at it with me. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah reveals an important truth here. He tells us that our only... Now get this, this is key. He tells us that our only escape from God is God. You get that? Our only escape from God is God. That is the gospel. That's the gospel right there. The one coming to judge is the only one who can save. That's Zephaniah's message. It's a good one, isn't it? Aren't you thankful it's not on you? Well, I'm thankful it's not on me because I know me. So what are we to do? We're to seek salvation from the one coming in judgment. And who specifically is coming in judgment? We're told clearly in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Listen to this. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. God makes it clear here that the one he sent to accomplish our salvation is the one he is sending to bring judgment in the end. And he is our only escape from the judgment in that day. And the way we can escape the judgment is by humbly seeking his mercy now, today. Seeking salvation from God through his son, Jesus. We must realize our sinfulness and our need for rescue from his coming judgment and fall at the feet of King Jesus, seeking his forgiveness and salvation so that we might be hidden on the day of God's judgment. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12. God says through Zephaniah, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Notice here that God makes mention of a people who will be spared in the day of judgment. God says here, Those who are spared from my judgment are the humble and the lowly. <clears throat> Those who realize they don't measure up. Those who understand that they've fallen short. Those who know their sinfulness and their need 
for rescue. Those who seek refuge in the Lord. Those who look to Him. Those who trust in the Lord. God makes it clear here that salvation is not found in pedigree or in religious devotion or by being better than some. It's found in the Lord. While God has this perfect standard, folks, that is out of our reach, Scripture is also clear that God has provided for us what He requires of us. And how has He done it? By sending His Son to live, die, and rise again so that we could be forgiven of sin and brought back into a right relationship with God through Him and have life eternal with Him. Look at Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Notice the promise God makes here to his people. He says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel. Now, who is that? Who's the king of Israel? Say Jesus. The king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. While God clearly tells us in Zephaniah that we have turned Against him, we have set ourselves against him in sin. We have fallen short of his glory and we deserve his wrath and judgment. He has also provided a way for us when there seemed to be no way. He sent his son to us, the king of Israel, Emmanuel, God with us, God in our midst, a mighty one who will save. You can be spared on that day. That's why it's good news. You can be spared on the day of God's judgment if you will see your sinfulness and your need for a Savior today and look to and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Have you made Christ Lord of your life? Have you turned from your sin? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Today is the day to do just that. Let me pray for us.